Welcome to the Ridley Institute podcast. My name is Sam Forniker. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is David Gustafson. David chairs the mission and evangelism department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Really excited about our conversation uh, today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. It's good to be here, part of your podcast. David, we're discussing your most recent book, which was published uh, last year with Erdman's Press, Gospel Witness Through the Ages, A History of Evangelism. As I was saying to you before we started our conversation, um, this is a tremendous book. It's the thing I'm going to return to um, certainly for intellectual stimulation. I'll recommend it to, to students as well as folks in our church, but I'll also return to it for my own spiritual uh, edification. So if I could just uh, kind of a very 10,000 foot question before we dive in. Um, who is the person that you most hope will pick this book up? And in what way would you most love uh, to see their perspective um, uh, shifted or impacted by it? Yeah, I, uh, good good question. Um, I actually wrote it probably for that person. Um, I would say a first-year seminarian uh, who's interested, obviously, in learning more about the the history of evangelism, its its application, you know, the, the proclamation of the gospel throughout throughout history. But I really wanted, and I'll just tip my hand very quickly here at the front uh, to give a a perspective on all the different ways that the gospel has been proclaimed mm. throughout the Christian uh, church's history. So it tends to broaden people's thinking. So the reason I say the first-year seminarian is because they, they often come, you know, I went to seminary, and we have these ideas, preconceived notions of what evangelism is and, and how we should do it. It's based mm. on a received tradition. Uh, whether that's using like the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade, Bill Bright, or from hearing Billy Graham, you know, preach to thousands at his crusades, like that's our view. Mm. But when you read the history of evangelism, you just it it kind of explode. Your mind explodes in terms of all the different ways the, the creativity, the various settings, the context, the various emphases. So it, it tends to bring uh, a sort of disorientation, which is what you want in educating people, especially like first-year seminarians. So I would say the the first year, but it's great for anybody, a college, you know, a Christian college student or a, a pastor, elder, uh, a, a lay person. Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to broaden their thinking about evangelism. By the time my people here in Mount Pleasant hear this podcast, this will already have happened, but I'm about to preach 2 Timothy 4, which is one of my very favorite passages uh, or, or chapters. Um, and, of course, you know, all the commentaries will go into the difference between, um, you know, preaching, the heraldic announcement, you know, the charisma, mm -hmm. and teaching, mm -hmm. the didache, and so on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Stott's lovely little volume in the Bible Speaks Today just makes the point that, um, yes, uh, conceptual distinction, not hard division. And <laughs> it's, it strikes me that as um, – uh, this isn't even on my list of questions. This is a freebie. Mm -hmm. So as, as – uh, I mean, cities are growing. We've got – you know, they're getting denser and denser. Our perspective on things is kind of broader and broader and broader, right? The frame gets pulled out. There seem to be more people. And um, part part of what I just found encouragement in was was actually taking the bringing like zooming the lens back just a little bit that mm -hmm. um, from like the the wonderful Billy Graham talks in in London say um, to uh, 
sitting with a friend over coffee doing the three, two, one course or something like that. This, mm-hmm. um, so just a lot of encouraging things. Uh, this book is um, drawing attention to that that are mm-hmm. going on in the scene today. So it, anyway, um, I, I, I'd love if I could, David, to just get you to comment on um, this way of approaching church history, like its distinctive kind of merits. Because, you know, mm-hmm. many first-year seminarians, if they're doing a, um, or I mean, or even if you're just a keen layperson, you want to study church history, somebody's going to hand you, you know, Gonzalez, maybe um, mm-hmm. this kind of standard church history book, and you're not really going to pay very much attention at all to evangelism. It's mm-hmm. a very, very different approach. Um, mm-hmm. you, let, can, can you just reflect on that for me? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah my <clears throat> my my uh, academic training was in uh, church history, so I did a PhD. But I wrote on uh, D.L. Moody, <clears throat> who was an evangelist, and so I've and because I've always had an interest in evangelism, I as I probably did my doctoral work, I was I was always thinking about you know, what is being contributed here to the proclamation of the gospel, kind of the mission of the church. So rather than just looking at theological developments and um, and particular ecclesial developments, I was always kind of asking the question in the back of my mind, what, what's happening with the gospel here and, and how is it being communicated? And uh, so that was, <clears throat> excuse me, to a degree, a, a sort of a, a category uh, of thought that I that I always had as I did my dissertation. And since I was doing it on uh, Deal Moody, you know, <clears throat> who was an evangelist, a revivalist evangelist, I had particular um, interest in that. So, uh, and I do teach in the area of evangelism. <clears throat> so the, the idea of doing something in church history specific to evangelism was of great interest. And uh, it's, it's obviously um, helpful in for students of evangelism to have a, a bigger perspective of what the evangelistic task um, is and what it uh, what various personalities in church history have contributed to that. So, David, without throwing without throwing your students under the bus, I mean, what what are some of those preconceptions that do tend to predominate when when a student comes in that? Um, you, I don't know if I should say, sort of derive satisfaction from, you know, you take joy in um, helping them broaden their view. What might some of those preconceptions be? Yeah, I think what you alluded to earlier um, was we tend to have it as a certain category of what that message would look, you know, sound like and the particular context that we are in versus having a broader perspective. Uh, and I can start to maybe share particulars from from my study, but um, let's take one of my favorite is Biblia Pauperum or Poor Man's Bible that was developed probably of Ans- by Ansgar of Bremen, who is also known as the Apostle to the North, and uh, who went to you know evangelize the Vikings. Uh, it's a great story in itself, but uh, his his development of of a a way to communicate the gospel using illustrations. And there's a long tradition that actually starts to inform even like chancel art and other things of, uh, you know, having a, a depiction of Jesus from the Gospels in the center flanked by on the right and the left, these Old Testament um, types of Christ. And uh, so he used those. Um, that was the beginning of a tradition within the, uh, the um, monastic movement 
to be able to communicate uh, the gospel to illiterate people, uh, to teach pagans. So it was used for catechism, just also just, you know, instructing uh, uh, pagan people. And I don't mean anything negative about that, just people who are non-Christians. Uh, what is the significance of the of the gospel? And so you start to see um, the value of depictions, uh, of illustrations, of ways to to communicate um, other than uh, just you know a, a verbal um, proclamation or using a pamphlet or something like that. So it starts to help us understand how the gospel has been communicated, and perhaps we can actually relearn something that would be helpful. Let's talk about our biblical starting point, right? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the biblical starting point for evangelism? It seems to me that that word is laden with so many assumptions now uh, we've mm -hmm. been talking yeah. about. Um, and so many assumptions, conversely, that would have been assumed by New Testament believers no longer necessarily yeah. occurred to us. So where, where, would yeah. you, where would you say we might start biblically? Yeah. Well, in, in my introductory chapter, and I, I am probably a little different, but in my introductory chapter, I, I do talk about uh, the gospel or evangelism in the Old Testament. Now, I don't give much space, you know, about a half of the introduction uh, to this, because I wanted to start with chapter one being Jesus and, and his disciples, the apostles. So uh, I, I was different than a, a couple of other authors that might do that a, a little bit different. But um, obviously, you know, there is references to the good news being proclaimed in the Old Testament. Um, various, uh, whether they're patriarchs or, you know, promises given uh, to prophets, uh, we have these uh, cases of, you know, references to good news, gospel, euangelion um, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, that would be in the Septuagint, that particular word. But nonetheless, you have... Um, you know, a, a heralding, a proclaiming of of good news. You have uh, all of those those passages in Isaiah, for example, that that bring that. And you know, uh, some of some have referred to Isaiah as the fifth, you know, evangelist uh, of the gospel. You know, you have the four gospels, four evangelists, and Isaiah would be the fifth. So, so there definitely is uh, references to to that, and it's pointing toward obviously the coming of of Jesus Christ and uh, the good news um, really in Him. So uh, that's that's where I think we we make a connection is we're expecting, anticipating, and then the New Testament is a revelation of this person uh, of of Jesus. So I would actually say that there are some some things um, that we can really learn about evangelism in the the Old Testament, but uh, how we understand Christian evangelism really comes uh, uh, fully in in the New Testament, especially, particularly in the Gospels. I, as I said before we, we started recording, um, I, it, because it is such a rich book, I struggled to figure, to ask, to formulate questions in a way which could kind of draw mm -hmm. out particular things because there were simply so many um, and so I'm going to ask some more kind of synthetic questions. These are going to be focused a little bit more kind of on the practical application side. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but as I said to you before, you know, reframe. You can you can mm -hmm. go, take us in different directions if you like. Yeah. Um, and I suppose yeah, I, I suppose one of my first questions is um, what what were some of the major shifts in the evangelistic practice of 
the early church that have maybe uh, you know left kind of ripple effects for us today? Uh, what, what were some of the new developments that maybe disrupted uh, ways of doing things? Um, mm. You know that were were possibly you know partially helpful, partially unhelpful. Yeah. Uh... Good, good question. Uh, we do see developments uh, in gospel proclamation throughout the history of the church. One of the early ones that I talk about in the first chapter is the movement from, and I'll use the, the word charismatic here, which is, I'd say, small c, charismatic. You see the, the charismatic nature of the early church uh, with uh, apostles, with prophets, with evangelists, with prophets, um, with um, pastors and teachers. So w- the Ephesians 4 um, descriptions there of, of gifted uh, bodies within the, the church to, to equip and build up the church. So, uh, but, but very, very much that into the second century, so that very much in the first century, we see that charismatic leadership. By the second century, we start to see more of the the organization um, of the church, and uh, so we start to see some some shifts um, that take place. One of the interesting things, even in the second century, is how bishops were evangelists. Uh, I find this fasc- fascinating. We often think of the bishop as uh, you know administrative and super you know supervising the the, the pastorates, uh, you know the pastorate and uh, various churches, but the bishop was more of a uh, like a director of church planting and was out there, <laughs> was out there preaching the gospel in new areas uh, to establish new congregations that he would oversee, uh, which makes a lot of sense. So, so there's a little bit of an interesting shift um, early on. And um, so kind of from the charismatic to more of an established uh, role where we begin to see for instance, the bishop break away from, you know, the office of like um, elder and deacon, however you understand that, but, but we do begin to see that, that differentiation. Um, so that would be an early development, I think, a uh, shift that takes place. Um, the other one, obviously, is going to be the relationship of the church and the state, or what we call Christendom. So by the fourth century, uh, and that really begins to to change also kind of the nature of evangelism, going from uh, proclaiming the gospel to ignorant pagans. So I know that sounds harsh when I say that, but it simply means people who've never heard of Jesus and don't know Christ to, you know, you're, you're sharing the good news with them too. Once you start to have this more cultural alliance with uh, between church and state that we see come under Constantine, uh, evangelism in many ways is beginning to try to convince the nominal Christian that they're not a Christian, <laughs> they need Christ, if that makes sense. So, and that's a that's sort of a sub-theme that we'll see all the way through the history of the church. Um, is this this sort of relationship between the, the church and the state. So how do people understand themselves as being Christians or not? And uh, what message do they need to hear? And so that, that um, 
is is something that begins to shift uh, things a little bit also. Um, and uh, probably if I, I can add a third, that would be an, an understanding of becoming a Christian as one who's baptized. Uh, that's often also associated with Christendom. And uh, you have pagans simply being baptized, um, not necessarily affirming any statement of of who Christ is, but, you know, following suit as others are. And so we begin to see things uh, somewhat clouded at that point. As for, for me, in a as a 21st century evangelical, you know, that believes in the good news, the euangelion, the, the message of Jesus in his incarnation, in his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, you know, that, that core message, sometimes that that became somewhat secondary to to the act itself of being baptized. So uh, that's uh, another sort of early development. So I, I think I've mentioned maybe about three that we see um, relatively early in the church. That's that's very helpful. It brings to mind. I'm not necessarily uh, recommending this to, uh, to 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 listeners. I've I, I left off uh, when they brought Jonathan Rhys Myers onto the show, but uh, the show Vikings is. Quite Quite interesting, um, <laughs> theologically, religiously, uh, and of course the the baptism of the Vikings in you know at various points in, in that uh, in that show is uh, is quite striking. Um, but but anyway, that's by the by, uh, not necessarily recommending. Just interesting. Okay, so um, a slightly slightly more con- kind of contemporary uh, question, which again I'm hoping you can just draw down on the book for us, but. Um, uh-huh. So, D- David, what in your what in your view have been some of the most? You mentioned you know you you studied Moody, so you've you've obviously you've you've gone very deep in um, in the kind of late modern period. We would mm-hmm. say, what in your view have been some of the most problematic developments in evangelistic practice during the the modern period? I, mm-hmm. I recognize this puts you in a slightly more kind of prescriptive than descriptive uh, position, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean the. Um I have the chapter on um, uh, soul-saving versus social gospel. So that would be one that I think um, complicated uh, things also uh, in in a way that necessarily wasn't wasn't helpful. And um, can you tell us just a little bit about that, David? Actually, just- yeah, yeah. So so at the turn of the twentieth century, so at the end of the of the 1900s and and I'm sorry, at the end of the 1800s and in the early part of the 1900s, was the uh, the modernist fundamentalist uh, theological debate over a number of major theological issues, and uh, out of that came both the, what we call the social gospel, meaning that the gospel is primarily uh, has to do with human flourishing and that idea of of just um, in improving or redeeming human human condition uh, versus a soul-saving gospel that the, the gospel is a, a promise uh, given by God uh, based upon the work of Jesus and as we respond to it in faith we have we have the hope of glory we have a relationship with God so that's the soul saving so kind of those two emphases um, which I think had been held together pretty well by the church up until that point, um, and this would be more of a you know North American. You're right, uh, early 20th century uh, division that started had a, a sort of bifurcation between these two things and began to kind of uh, war against each other's. 
I'll, I'll say that generally there were groups that maintained these two um, elements or sides, kind of the social and the spiritual, but uh, some began to really kind of act or react toward, toward the other side in an unhelpful way. And I think the church suffered. I think in some ways that issue is still around with us. So that's why, you know, I'm, I would embrace a, a gospel that is spoken in word and message, but also has a very tangible material um, dimension to it also. It's, it's implications of the good news of Jesus that, that, that informs our evangelism. All right, so the message is one thing, but our evangelism, uh, the act of proclaiming is one of message, but it's also one of action. It's one of um, how we speak and what we do and, and what we do with that message. And so um, that's that's the point. So I have a whole chapter um, on, on that. That's obviously an issue within church history that's important for us to understand. But... Uh, it should, I think, also help to inform our evangelism. We have a, a lot of great examples um, that of groups that come through that time. Many are, are the sort of city rescue missions that continue to you know, minister the word, uh, proclaim Jesus uh, as, you know, come in the flesh, um, died upon the cross, you know, raised, um, uh, resurrected and and also very committed in terms of how they com- communicate that to demonstrating those those same sort of virtues that we see in Jesus in their in their ministry and so that's keeping those things together rather than kind of isolating one from the other. Hmm. I, so that's really interesting to me because I just in my experience in conversation with. Uh, twenty to twenties to forties, and um, my uh, yeah, well, uh, particularly that range. Uh, you know, I've no. I used to think in terms of okay, I've got to convince this person that the Bible is true, uh, that uh, Christianity is true, that it's real, that it's genuine, etc. Um, and now the issue seems to be yeah, but is it is it is it good? You know, mm-hmm. is is Jesus good? And um, it is just, I mean, in some ways, it's actually a welcome shift that helps to kind of break out, break out a historic logjam um, mm. that these things can can and actually must, in some way, fit together again mm-hmm. in yeah. order for both of those things to be themselves. Um, but that's yeah, that's really that's really helpful. I'm, I'm also curious, David, if there are uh, some areas of contemporary church life. That might be preserving, uh, even if like in a dormant way, really potent evangelistic resources, which were m- more, um, I don't know, powerfully uh, or prudently wielded in earlier ages. So like a, a small group ministry I think of in the church mm-hmm. today, right? Like um, how could, you know, something like a small group ministry or, you know, you can give any number of examples, I'm sure. Like h- how could we, how could the local church reactivate these muscle groups, if you like, to, mm. to be more evangelistically fruitful? Yeah, uh, I think small groups are a, a good place. I mean, the church began in small small groups for the most part, house meetings um, prior to the building of larger facilities. So 
body life and and meeting in smaller groups to hear the word to discuss the word you know the word of god to uh, I, I mean there's just so many good reasons why you'd want to meet in decentralized meetings with easy access for other people in your household or neighbors or co-workers to join you and that that's a theme that we see beginning in the early church among uh in the the medieval period or late medieval you start to see a number of the more dissenter groups um doing that and needing to do that uh you have the moravian movement you have the pietist movement uh where conventicles uh is very important and we write about people like uh, Philip Jacob Spainer and August Hermann Franke, those those guys who are all about getting people into small groups. I mean, some of the early university ministry is uh, those conventicles, people coming together, reading scripture and discussing it with a view toward life application. So, uh, you know, those of us who've been in, in campus ministry and have experienced those kinds of things, we see the value. Uh, there is a you know, a, a, a renewal today with uh, Discovery Bible Method that's being used in various parts of the world as a as a uh, way to introduce other people to the gospel. So we're seeing things like that, um, and those have been around for 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 a long time. But but they're very valuable. So it's good to to exercise those those muscles, as as you said, Sam, and uh, maybe consider new ways or you know new groups that we we might be able to uh, invite to such a such a session yeah I'm I've not heard of the discovery Bible method is there can you give us a, just a snapshot of that yeah it's um discovery Bible method it goes by different names but essentially it's uh, getting together with one or two other people just to read through the Bible and then there's there's a a battery of questions you just ask of any text that you read. Let's say you start in the Gospel of Mark and you read through the Gospel of Mark. Well, you wouldn't do that. You would read, let's say, verses 1 through 16, Mark 1, 1 through 16. And then you would say, you know, what's this text saying? You know, what do you think it means? Um, what do you learn about the about Jesus here? What words or wisdom of Jesus can you start to apply in your life? That's it. That's all. That's basically what you're doing with about any text. So that's become a a way that people are actually sharing the gospel uh, today. Just getting together and reading uh, the Bible with somebody, and then asking these questions. The idea is to get them into the Word, get the Word into them. Uh, you're hopefully a, a safe person, a good spiritual conversation partner <laughs> that you can start to have a good and you're not the answer person you're primarily helping them engage uh, with the uh, the scripture so acting more more like a, a spiritual director i'd say at that point just helping them think through and, and ask questions and, and reflect on on the bible and you know it's interesting one of the main questions is what what are the words and wisdom of jesus that you can practice this week so it's interesting that we're with Discovery Bible Method, you're actually asking non-believers to start to put into practice some words and wisdom of Jesus, to apply the words and wisdom. So anyway, I, it's uh, it's coming around. But I think 
uh, if you've read uh, Pious Desires by Philip Jacob Spainer or those kinds of books, you start to realize that's what essentially they were uh, they were doing, getting people into smaller groups, asking questions about the meaning of scripture and how do you actually live this out? So that's extremely helpful. I've, I'm, I, so I'm a, I, I'm a big advocate and practitioner of, you know, one-to-one Bible reading or small group mm-hmm. Bible reading. And so I've tended mm-hmm. even as particularly with, with younger guys, I mean, with anybody teenage, mm-hmm. teenage to, um, you know, in, in their twenties who's newer to scripture and we'll, we'll do, I don't know what the name of it is. I think it's a, like a Swedish method, but the light bulb mm-hmm. question mark arrow. And so we'll, okay. we'll do Sim- similarly, you know, thinking through, um, you know, where did where did the, where did the light bulb come on? What questions were raised? What's yeah. the what's the application point? But that's a the but this discovery Bible method sounds much more refined. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. I'll go and I'll go and check it out. Um, uh, uh, and, and listeners, find somebody to read your Bible with, okay? And re- yeah. reach out to me for 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 more help on that. And um, I'll. Email David. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. no, I'm just kidding. Lots of resources to pass on. Um, okay, so da- David, I-, I mentioned just the urban, kind of the urban factor earlier. The world's becoming a more urban place. These kind of megalopolises are becoming mm-hmm. more plentiful. They're more dense. Um, and I'm just wondering, I mean, I-, I-, I was so fascinated by chapter nine because you've got two very different, like, um, <laughs> theaters, right? Like th- there's the there's the westward expansion in, in America and mm-hmm. so on. But then you've also got the kind of urban evangelism happening in Chicago, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I know it's been kind of a, a topic of conversation of late in evangelical circles. How do we, and in the Anglican world, um, uh, which very much belongs in the evangelical uh, orbit, how how do we kind of hit that sweet spot between on the one hand being nimble and responsive, and then on the other hand um, being so thorough and so well prepared that um, I mean I know as like as, as you know Tim Keller at one point talked about you know, we send everybody off back to the East Coast to get trained and they never go back out west you know um, so. so it, I I would think that there are lessons here for uh, for us as. Um, we're trying to hit that sweet spot in, um, it, I guess now this is, we're talking a little bit more about raising up gospel ministers, apprentices, mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. like that. Um, any reflections you you, uh, you you care to make on, on that? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, when I think of, um, you know, urban rule and east, west, north, south, I, I tend to think of the United Methodists. Okay, so... And, and they should have at least, I guess, at least one star for coming from, you know, the Church of England. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, so <laughs> but, but kind of a very much a revivalist. But, but in America, in the American experiment, you know, the Methodists win this, this race, and it is church planting, north, south, east, west, urban and rural. So they... They were about disciple making. They're about gospel proclamation, and they they seem to do it well. And also among um, some of you know the 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 Ang- the, the Anglo's as well as African Americans. Um, now the African American experience came with some difficulty, but nonetheless, um, you know, Richard Allen and others you know um, expanded uh, the church through through the African uh, branch. But nonetheless. Um, you know, we, we see a, a, 
a recognition of the gospel to go to all peoples. And uh, I think what you you said, your illusion, you know, people go out out east to study and they never come back. I think that 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 can be uh, that can be um, very very true. I think we we have to recognize that all people uh, need to hear the gospel. Uh, farmers in Wyoming need to to hear the gospel, <laughs> as well as uh, people in Manhattan. Uh, so. Uh, it's 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 important uh, to, to to not downplay. This is any context um, of where to go and serve. So I think you know God could call and and is calling people to to all places, all contexts. Uh, now that might be individual, particular to to people, but the idea is that God may be calling. Uh, someone to, you know, church plant to farmers and ranchers in Wyoming, something like that. Uh, that's that's my point, that we, we generally tend to gravitate towards certain places in the world, but uh, the missionary impulse, and we see that throughout the history of the church, that missionary impulse to take the good news of Jesus to people who have not yet heard and to be faithful in delivering that, that message. And faithful to the message, faithful to, to the task of taking that message. And uh, quite f- frankly, Sam, we there are just hundreds and thousands, perhaps millions of examples of people who have gone before us. I mean, that's where for me as a, as a church historian going through this, you know, when I came to the point where my narrative intersected with this narrative, I said, oh my goodness, like this is now part of my responsibility. This is this is where I enter the story. That reality is true. Um, we, we are part of the, the proclamation of the gospel that began with Jesus and the apostles. And we could even, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, go back to the Old Testament. But we are a part of this gospel proclamation movement, this, this movement of, of sharing Jesus um, with other people. And uh, and that should that should energize us. And I think reading a, a book like this, um, even though I've written it, I can say you know at least as an author, this happened to me. You know, going going through the whole thing, I began to see that that there's a continuity here, and um, I'm in a tradition. So I'm in a, a rich gospel proclamation tradition, and. Uh, and then that should actually motivate me as well uh, in 2023, soon to be 2024, uh, to be a faithful witness to the gospel. I'm really, and just to put an exclamation point on that, I'm, I genuinely hope that people will get a copy of this and, and read it, both for their, their learning, um, but, but also, as I said before, for their edification. And, um, and because it will, I mean, it, it will exhort them to do just that. I think that this book will benefit a lot of students, but also a lot of churches, mm-hmm. um, uh, in the in the short and long term. Um, I'm, I think I've got uh, one more question for us, David. I'm going to, I'm going to skip one that um, might be a little arcane, and um, and jump right to one which I think will be probably most helpful for for listeners. You suggest in the final chapter that. One major challenge facing the gospel today is the challenge of what um, I would call gospel articulacy, the, the, the ability to define and communicate the gospel clearly. 
Uh, and you suggested getting gospel articulacy uh, right in our churches is going to take more than upfront exposition alone. Um, it's going to take pastors learning not just how to expound, although many of us need a lot of work on that too, but <laughs> but specifically on how to equip. Yeah. No, I think um, we need to think through what what is the message that we're communicating so there has to be clarity gospel clarity there for there to be gospel fluency to use vanderstelt's lingo <laughs> uh so we start with the message and i'm a traditionalist meaning i think great statements like the apostles creed and the nicene creed you know i could i could camp out there i, I could you know i could talk about acts 2 and acts 10 um and other other places where I think there are good summaries of what the good news is. Uh, ultimately, the good news is about Jesus, that Jesus has come into the world. So um, in, in another book called Gospel Witness, Evangelism, and Word and Deed, I, I really kind of harp on this, that the gospel just isn't what God has done for me, but the fact that what God has done for the world and by Jesus coming into the world. So so first of all, I, I think it's important for pastors to actually think through um, what, what is the gospel, what does scripture say, and then to begin to think about ways that we can easily communicate that. Now, now here's here's a principle that we can't overcomplicate the gospel. You know, we have to keep the message simple, so it has to be clear and compelling to those uh, with whom we're we're sharing it. So, if it's if we haven't really thought through in a in a in a way of how we can clearly communicate it simply. And then it becomes more difficult. I've seen this, and I could talk about this happening with training in, in local churches. If, if if it's too difficult, Christians don't do it. If 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 evangelism is too hard, Christians don't. You know, they'll they they say I can't do this, and they give up. Well, we don't want that to happen. So we have a pastoral responsibility to actually help them, and and have some ways. Um, I don't want to just get into it like the cookie cutter version, but we we have a basic message that needs to be communicated, and and then if there are ways that we can help our our people uh, by learning maybe some starting questions that we have with with people uh, that we come into contact with. Um, and one, for instance, uh, leading into Discovery Bible Method, which we had just talked about, one is, you know, hey, I've been looking for somebody to read the Bible with. Um, would you be willing to do that with me? Um, just, you know, like just to get together, like for 15 or 20 minutes at a time and read the Bible uh, together. And then, you know, what, what we do is read uh, one of the gospels or some passages from the gospel and use those questions. But but having questions like that and helping our congregation, our congregants to know some of those easy ways or ways that they can begin to engage. So, so pastors really need to think through uh, the basics of what is the message? How can I equip my people in that message? Um, how can uh, I give them some tools to easily make transitions uh, or invitations to other people? So those are those are kinds of, of things that I think a pastor can do, and and a pastor should do. A pastor should you know equip his uh, or her people you know in 
in the task of sharing the good news. Yeah. Yeah. One must do the work <laughs> of an evangelist, as someone yeah. said. I, I yeah. you, David, you've, um, you, you just prompt me to ask, are there particular resources that we might uh, turn to as kind of first stops for thinking through mm-hmm. those, uh, I think, three things that you just mentioned? Kevin Harney has written a couple of pieces uh, on organic outreach. I think that would be a, a good place uh, for a pastor uh, to to learn. Organic church, I think, is one. Is it? No, no, no. Um, organic outreach, I think, is the he has two books with similar titles. That's what's confusing me. But but anything <laughs> Kevin Harney does, I think, is is good in terms of some some resources at the pastoral level for a congregation uh, to be able to um, to utilize uh, for for pastors. Uh, this book or my other book is called Gospel. I mentioned it. I'm sorry already. Gospel. Gospel uh, witness, uh, evangelism, and word and deed. So the uh, one of the chapters there is is how as a pastor you create an evangelistic culture within your congregation. There's things that that we can do to to shape a healthy gospel sharing culture, and so that would be I think a, a good place that I would direct people. I think I have about seven ways uh, to shape a, a gospel sharing church. Wonderful. That's so helpful. Thank you. I've taken my notes. I hope listeners have. <laughs> um, David, uh, thanks. I'm, I've got my eye on the time. I think we should draw to a close. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on and, and fielding these questions. Well, it's been my pleasure, Sam. I think uh, thank you for uh, inviting me. And uh, hopefully, you know, this has been an encouragement also to your listeners. Folks, the, the book by David M. Gustafson is entitled Gospel Witness Through the Ages. A History of Evangelism, published just last year, that is 2022, uh, by Erdman's uh, Press. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Please do jump on next time. In a couple of weeks, I've got a conversation with Kevin Rowe on his book, Leading Christian Communities. Uh, And at that time, I will announce the spring slate of interviews. Uh, So we've got some great stuff coming up. Uh, In the meantime, thanks for joining. Uh, See you then. I'm Sam Forniker. Thanks for listening.